0: It's Advent, almost Christmas, and so I thought maybe this would help, kind of with the mood, if I wore my frock. This is uh, actually the robe that I got when I graduated from uh, seminary and was ordained in the Presbyterian Church, USA. My in-laws gave it to me. There. Uh, how's, How's that? All right. Nice, nice, huh? Let's let's pray, Father. Thank you uh, for your presence here with us, and Lord, we offer up this service to you, Lord. I also want to offer up, um, pray especially for Leslie Galloway, who's recovering uh, in the hospital and has been in pretty critical condition. Lord, I pray that you'd heal her, heal uh, Lord, all those who are sick. Meet us in the place where we hurt, and Lord, I ask that you would help us to preach. Um, It just feels like there's so much to say, and Lord, in this message, there's so much that could be misunderstood, and there's so little time to say this stuff, and so that's a scary combination. So, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, would you apply your word, apply yourself to our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. You can tell it's almost Christmas, right? Because of all the perfume ads. Uh, I love them. They always fascinate me. Do you remember uh, this one? If you're old, maybe you do. Is that me holding you? Are you holding me? I cannot tell where you begin and I end and where I end and you begin. Obsession. <laughs> Eternity. I don't know, some, something like that. I've always been fascinated with perfume commercials because, you know, how do you advertise smelly water? Truthfully. You have BO and smell like death. But for only $114 at Ulta, I looked it up, only $114 at Ulta.com, you can buy 3.3 ounces of Eternity that will make you smell like BO and flowers. Eternity. A lie about temporality. I read that Americans uh, spend 89.7 Is this right? No? Uh, yeah, 89.7 billion dollars per year on cosmetics. The average American woman spends ,3756 dollars per year on cosmetics, and so the commercials are working. People want eternity in a bottle that can be applied externally to the skin. And now our text, where we left off last time, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Do not let your adorning, in Greek, kosmos. It's where we get our English word, cosmetic. Do not let your kosmos be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear A bit of that text, a wee bit offensive. But there you have it. No cosmetics. No jewelry. No fine clothing. If you wonder why various branches of conservative Christianity are opposed to makeup, jewelry, and fancy clothing, this is why. But Peter Peter. Uh, doesn't actually write fine clothing, although most translations add the word uh, fine. The ESV translates correctly here. Peter literally writes, Let not your adorning be the braiding of hair, the adorning of gold, or the wearing of clothes. And as far as we know, the early Christians did in fact wear clothes. Quite often. But there's still begs a bigger question, doesn't it? And that is, why do we wear clothes at all? Why do any of us feel the need to wear clothes at all? At least any of us over the age of, like, what? Two or three. And there are an awful lot of ways in which we adorn ourselves, aren't there? Do you know why pastors wear robes? I've read a few different reasons because I had to look it up. But supposedly Puritan pastors... Wore uh, robes, black robes, uh, to to cover up their clothes, so that people would just focus on what they were saying. But you focused on this on this baby, didn't you? This frock cost my in-laws six hundred bucks in nineteen eighty-eight. That was the price of a used motorcycle at the time. And when I found that out, it like broke my heart. <laughs> Some say they wear a robe because it symbolizes their office and their authority, as a pastor or a rabbi or, or a priest, and yet Jesus said to his disciples, You are not to be called rabbi, for you're all brothers. And, or to be called father for, for you have one father. He didn't mention pastor, I don't think, because the word pastor just means shepherd, and shepherd were like the lowest of the low. Or to be called instructor, for you have one instructor, the Christ the Christ. And when he was born, he didn't have a robe. And when he died, they crucified him naked, utterly unadorned, defrocked. So if you don't mind, I'm going to take this off in obedience to, to Scripture. Let not your adorning B, what did he say? The wearing of gold, um, fancy jewelry, hairdos, uh, the, wearing of, the wearing of clothes. I literally just defrocked myself. So if anyone ever tells you to frock off, Sorry. <laughs> but if you just defrock yourself, that insult will carry no power. No power. So I, I undressed a bit, but I'm going to stop here because there are other texts that indicate that we should at least wear pants in December in temperate zones. And in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel, God even says to Jerusalem, his bride, he says this, I adorned you with jewelry. I adorned you with jewelry bracelets, a necklace, a ring for your nose, earrings. So if you ever, nose rings are biblical, okay? Earrings for your nose, earrings are, nose rings for your nose. Earrings for your ears, a crown, gold, silver, fine linen, silk, and embroidered clothes. So God's not opposed to hairdos and jewelry and clothes as such. And yet Peter does say, let not your adornment, your cosmos, be this stuff. This external stuff. There are an awful lot of ways that we adorn ourselves in fact, it spends the, it seems that we spend like our entire lives at, at least since the age of two or three trying to adorn ourselves that is trying to make ourselves look better than we are or at least better than we have judged ourselves to be well cosmetics cosmetics are are a lie they 're a lie that we all enjoy to some extent, but you're telling people that you smell like what you don't smell like. And that you look like what you don't actually look like. And that you feel like what you don't really feel like. In other words, you cover yourself in eternity because you're dying. And if you adorn yourself with degrees, titles, wealth, and good deeds, well, aren't you doing just pretty much exactly the same thing? Think about it. If you adorn yourself with righteousness or good deeds, aren't you trying to cover up the fact that you're not good? But instead of good, you're self-righteous, which is the epitome of unrighteousness. It's actually original sin. That's the problem with the law. If I need instructions on how to act good, doesn't it it simultaneously reveal that I'm not good, even if I'm a good actor? That is a hypocritus, a hypocrite. And so human religion, ethical laws, proper procedure, knowledge of good and evil, well, it's all a trap. Just like cosmetics are a trap. I mean, we all really want to be seen and felt and even smelt, don't we? And so we advertise ourselves. We wear cosmetics, clothes, and even religious robes so that people would want to see us, touch us, and maybe even smell us. But then when people see us, touch us, and smell us, and hear us, it's not actually us that they're seeing, touching, smelling, and hearing. It's an act. We all want to act good so that people would think that we are good. But then when they begin to know us and love us, it's not us that they're actually knowing and loving. It's an imposter. And where are we? We're imprisoned in a fortress of our own construction, terrified that someone might shine a light into the depths of our hiding place. It's like building a bigger and bigger and bigger home to impress the neighbors and then getting trapped in the home that you've built. You know, God had Moses build him a tent. And when David wanted to turn it into uh, the tabernacle, he wanted to turn the, the tabernacle into a stone temple, which he thought would be more fitting for God. Do you, do you remember? God seemed pretty ambivalent about it. In Exodus, he told Moses, I want a tent. So I can dwell in the midst, the middle of my people. And so when David suggests this through the prophet, he says to David, would you build me a house? All this time I've been moving about in a tent with my people. You will not build me a house, but your seed will. A son of David will. This is my girlfriend in high school. Talk about put together. I mean, I'm telling you, she was a brick house. I was seated next to her by Mrs. Rydberg in Masterpieces of English Literature, junior here at Heritage High School. It took me four months to ask her out on a date, and, and then only because Alan Parsons like lined up a date and he didn't have somebody to drive, so I me to drive and make it a double date. I was terrified because I thought that she was just way too good, too popular for me. Later, I found out that she was frustrated all that time, frustrated with me because the whole time, those, those four months in English class, she had been trying to impress me with stories of how popular she was. I mean, kind of even making some up. Even as I've been trying to impress her with, you know, all the cool ski tags on my jacket and my debonair and aloof demeanor. I don't care. (laughs) Advertising me, I was trapped in myself, a false self. And advertising herself, she didn't reveal her true self to me, although I was very impressed with the house. It was a miracle that I ever asked her out and a greater miracle that she said yes, Nevertheless, after a year, I said one day, well, maybe we ought to date other people, and I broke up with her. But the next day, I drove over to her house, hoping to make up with her. Her mom told me that she had gone to the park to feed the the ducks, and so I drove to the park, and I just watched her from a distance, feeding the ducks in the rain, weeping. Unbeknownst to her, I saw that I had broken her heart. And her broken heart broke my heart. For I saw that she had made herself vulnerable to me. It was her unadorned soul that captured my heart. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, wrote Paul. And you know, sometimes when they break, glory spills out and it changes the world. It's not just like that with Susan, it's been that way with my kids. They have each adorned themselves for me and to advertise, advertise themselves to me ever since they gained the knowledge of good and evil, you know, around the age of three and began to worry that they might not be enough. And yet with each of them, there is a moment that I now treasure more than any other moment, a moment that I won't share with you now for it's too personal and precious to us. It's a moment with each of them when, well, just their world had utterly crumbled. And each of them found a way to come to me and ask me, Dad, do you love me even now? And I could let them know, I love you more now, more than ever. For, for now, I see you. I know you. You have revealed and returned your unadorned soul to me, the soul that I love. More than I can even say. And, and it's not just that way with my kids. It's been like that with all of you. When someone confesses, because this happens sometimes when you're a pastor, when someone confesses sins to me, revealing an unadorned soul to me, well, nothing could make me love them more. And nothing could make me love being a pastor more than saying to you in that moment, he sees you. He knows you, he touches you, he feels you, and he delights in in you, and he could not love you more. In the name of Jesus the Christ, you are forgiven. I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses, wrote Paul, that the power of Christ would rest on me. See, I think St. Paul believed that Jesus found his weaknesses strangely attractive. This is a picture of Susan and me on our wedding day. I mean, is that not a great advertisement for the grace of God that that she would say yes to me? And is this not a great advertisement for the beauty of my bride, Susan? I mean, talk about cosmetics and dang, a Farrah Fawcett hairdo. She had a new gold ring, a gorgeous wedding gown. I had never seen such a temple so adorned with such glory, spectacular adornment. And yet, and now please don't think I'm trying to be crass or obscene, and yet this entire day, because we had been relatively relatively good Christian kids for five and a half years, this entire day all I could think of was my unadorned bride, for I longed to know her. In the one place that she had spent her entire lifetime, well, at least since about the age of two, her entire lifetime covering in shame. And yet, when I knew her in that place, she didn't scream in terror. She hung on to me in joy, and she hasn't let go. And you see, that's just weird. Another word for weird is holy. And because God is our creator, we need to ask, why is that? Why is that? And whether your story is longing, sorrow, pain, ecstasy, or despair, each one of you knows what I'm talking about. And right now, right now, each one of you is tempted to cover your shame, even as you desperately long for intimate communion. And we need to ask, why? Why are we like that? If we take a shot at actually believing the Bible, it's because on the sixth day of creation, Adam, which is you, could not find his helper, who is God, who was with him. And so God split the Adam into making male and female, told them to be fruitful and multiply, and then left them apparently alone with an evil talking snake, in a garden with this freaky weird tree right in the middle of it. On the tree was the good in flesh and the life. On the tree was their helper, their husband, about to be made fit for them, his bride. They didn't know this, but soon they would begin to know this, and dying they would die. And then he would come to know them, which is the death of death, and a different kind of knowing its eternal life. As we've been preaching, number one, life is a judgment, a decision. Number two, life is a logic. Number three, life is a conscious communion of sacrificial love. So according to Scripture, when Adam and Eve, which is somehow you, when they took the fruit to make themselves like God, which is somehow sin, when they took the fruit, which is somehow our helper, Jesus, When they took the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden sanctuary at the edge of time and eternity, the sanctuary which is somehow your soul. When they did that, they then covered covered the very spot where they were to commune with each other in the very image and likeness of God, and they began to die. It's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is to wrap oneself in fig leaves that you might be entirely alone in a world of your own creation and die. Death is not non-existence. Death is being alone. And so the life once died For he was imprisoned alone, for he had descended into a body of death, which is somehow you. Well, Adam and Eve covered their shame. This is my point. Adam and Eve invented cosmetics. As I mentioned, the word translated adornment is cosmos, which should sound vaguely familiar to you, right? Because you know what cosmos means? Cosmos. So everywhere else, almost everywhere else in the English Standard Version is translated with the English word, world. So if you make your world all about adorning yourself, you have already trapped yourself within yourself, dead and alone. And hopefully you realize that this has already happened to you. It happened around the age of two or three, and from that time, it's just been getting worse and worse and worse. So now you find yourself trapped in a tent around which you have built a giant stone house, which you perceive as your entire world. Your cosmos. And whatever would threaten that world, you experience as a threat, a scandal, and a feeling called shame. And who are you really? You're the breath of God longing for the lungs that bore you. You're the breath of God, longing for the lungs that bore you, the logic that breathes you, and even the spirit that actually somehow in some incredible way is you. So the lust of the flesh is to wrap the self in fig leaves and die, and the lust of the spirit is communion. Life. Life. Galatians 5.17, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit, there's the King James version, lusteth against the flesh. Luke 22.15, in lust I have lusted to eat the Passover with you before I suffer, said Jesus to his bride, who happened to be 12 guys. Ephesians 5.7, therefore the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is a profound one, says Paul, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, his church. So if you thought that the lust of the flesh was sex, you need to know that it can be. It can be rape, which leads to fig leaves, loneliness, and death. And yet sex can also be a sacrament of communion in a covenant of love in which sacrifice is pleasure for two have become one and this is life and sometimes a baby. You see, before the fall, God wrote the gospel into the flesh of Adam, into the flesh of all of us, in order to teach all of us about our home in a garden that is a city that will contain all creation. And this all became painfully clear at the tree in the middle of the garden at the edge of time and eternity, which we also call the cross. At the cross, we took the beauty of God and the life of God as if it were our own. We raped and still rape our helper. But on the cross, our helper gave and still gives the beauty and the life that is himself. We raped him as he romanced us and is making one body out of us. Even now, there is an imperishable seed in the depths of your soul, which is the very Spirit of God. And even now, the very Spirit of God, in the words that we preach, is romancing you into a free and sacrificial communion. For when we are all freely subject to Him, we will all be subject to Him in one another, and at home in the kingdom of God, which is the very body of our helper, an endless communion of delight, or in Hebrew... Eden, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, writes Peter's friend, Paul. I'm telling you all of this to explain our $90 billion a year cosmetic industry, But even more to explain the three paragraphs, paragraphs that we're about to read, that we read last time, which are perhaps the most scandalous and offensive passages in all of the New Testament. I'm saying these things to to explain why they are so offensive and to suggest that the offense we feel might just be the gospel. And the scandal that threatens each one of us might just be the cross. And if we were to repent, if we let our gestalt shift, what looks like hell might actually be the edge of heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13. Peter's just written extensively remember about the living stones that are drawn together and become this one living temple. Verse 13, be subject through the Lord to every human creation, every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance, the lack of knowing of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Tamao. It means to set a price. It's like it's the same verb that's used, uh, you know, for the thirty pieces of silver in Matthew. The price that had been set tamao upon Jesus by some of the sons of Israel. What well, seems that in verse seventeen, Peter is like setting the same price on everyone, right? He said, honor everyone, including the emperor whose name happened to be Nero. And the price, he said, seems to be incredibly high, for as we preached last time, Peter allowed himself to be sacrificed for Nero. For when Nero was scapegoating the Christians for his own sins, and Peter was fleeing Rome at the insistence of the church, he had a vision of Jesus going the other direction, carrying... Cross And when Peter asked, where are you going, Lord? He replied, I'm going to Rome to be crucified once again. As everyone knows, Nero was a monster. He was literally, you can make an argument that he was literally the beast. And, And so you have to ask this question, what did Peter and Jesus see in Nero? And I think Peter already told us in chapter 1 verse 23 when he wrote you have been begotten again of imperishable spora through the living and abiding word that's the sperma the logos the promised seed of God I think that spora feminine for for seed only place it's used in the bible I think I think that spora that feminine seed must be the neshama the The ruach in in Hebrew, neshama and ruach, both feminine nouns, translated into English as breath or spirit. That spora must be the breath of life and spirit of God breathed into your bag of dust the day that you were created. Or I should say the day that we began to be created in the image of God, who is Jesus. Do you suppose it's to no purpose, asks James, that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He's referring to Exodus 29, verse 44, where God says, I will set apart a tent, a tabernacle of meeting. I will dwell in the midst, tavek, of the people. And that's a reference to Genesis 2, 9, the tree of life was in the tavek, the midst of of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Same place, the Tevek, the midst. And that's ultimately a reference to what Peter, James, John, and Paul all reveal in several places, such as 1 Corinthians 3. Quote, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? This is a diagram of the tabernacle that, you know, became the stone temple. In the most holy place, the the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle, uh, there would appear the presence of God on the throne of God between the cherubim and it must have looked something like this. And then like this. And finally like this. Which is also this. Which of course is this which you know is actually this. We preached on this just a few months ago. But what I'd like to point out to you now is that the temple is something like a fractal, if you know what that means. It's something like a repeating pattern, a pattern that can repeat within a a pattern. So your psyche, soul, or self is a temple, like we've been talking about. Jesus is a temple and the new Jerusalem, new heaven and earth is also a temple. God made you when he breathed his spirit into you where it remains in the depths of your temple in the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. Such great graphics. When you believe the lie you were exiled from the holy of holies into the outer courts of your own psyche, conscious of what you are not. And you began to build a fortress of stone around your psyche to save your life, which is the life having just died in you, cut off and alone. Jesus said, I am the life. Zoe, he is the imperishable Zoe in your perishable psyche. I don't know if I'm saying all this exactly right, but I'm saying that within every person that is, in fact, a person, there remains an imperishable seed. It's the Spirit of God, which we often experience as what we are not, for we are conscious that we have been exiled from ourselves. Jesus and Peter seem to think that this spirit is worth dying for. But listen closely. Peter did not sacrifice himself to Emperor Nero. That's idolatry. Peter sacrificed himself to, to God at a temple named Nero, in which the breath of God had been imprisoned. Have you ever wondered, how do I love the Lord with all that I am and all that I have and still love my neighbor as myself? What would I have left to love my neighbor with? with? See, that that only is possible if the Lord is hidden in the temple that is my neighbor. So Peter didn't sacrifice himself to Nero, just as Jesus didn't sacrifice himself to us, but he did sacrifice himself for us to God. He did it just outside the stone walls of a city, which is also a temple in which the Spirit had been imprisoned for a thousand years. Next verse. House slaves, being subject to your masters with all respect or fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the crooked. For this is grace. Grace. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what glory is it if when you sin and are beaten, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, you endure? This is grace from God. I hope you all are aware that you're saved by grace. And God is grace, which means that when you're beaten but forgive, you actually bleed salvation. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly or justly. He himself bore up our sins in his body on the tree, that having been separated from sin, we might live in, literally, with the article, the righteousness. By his wounds, I guess the righteousness, by the, his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your, your souls, your psyche. So, how did the shepherd entice the sheep back into the fold? How did the shepherd free us from the prison of the false self that we might in fact become himself, that is our true selves? How did he free us from Mises and Wheezes that we might become the body of Jesus? How do you do that? It wasn't with politicians and legislation and armies. It was something else. In his book, Philosophical Fragments, Søren Kierkegaard describes the gospel with the story of a young king, the king of all the land, who spied a, a peasant girl, one of his subjects from the coach in which he was riding. From a distance, he fell in love and longed for her to love him freely in return. But as he considered his riches, power and the robes with which he was adorned, he realized that he only had One option. He had the power to forcefully take her back to his palace, but that would be rape. And her love would not be free. He also had the glory to dazzle her with all the adornments of his soul, his wealth, his knowledge, his influence and popularity, but he realized that he would never know then, and she would never know if she had freely fallen in love with him. You know, the real him. And so he emptied himself, took the form of a slave that she might fall in love with his unadorned soul. You know, I'm really very impressed with God's power and splendor. I mean, I have seen some miracles. I've seen a few that blew the doors off my wagon. And I've been amazed that the beauty of God in in nature, but I think I've only fallen in love with God when I've witnessed his light shining in the darkness. That's grace. Jesus was born naked, an unadorned soul. And Jesus was crucified naked literally dressed as a king, then publicly defrocked and then crucified naked. An unadorned soul. When I be lifted up from the earth, he said, speaking of his cross, I will draw all people unto myself. And so on that tree in that garden, he cried, it is finished. And then he delivered up his spirit, neshama, ruach. Kierkegaard told this story, but he thought it also needed something more. For he wrote, a person cannot seek what he knows, right? In other words, if you know something fully, you you can't really seek it. And just as impossibly, he cannot seek what he does not know. For how could he then even desire to seek it? As Socrates claimed, all learning and seeking are but recollecting, remembering. And so on the tree, the king of kings, stripped of all external adorning, delivered up his spirit, and the veil in the temple ripped from the top to the bottom. St. Paul tells us there's one body and one spirit. So it seems that it's the spirit of God breathed into us in the beginning that recollects and recognizes the spirit of God in Jesus, the word. It's eternity in our hearts, as Solomon put it. Eternity in the heart of man, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. It's eternity in our heart, our soul, that recollects and recognizes eternity on the tree, the beginning and the end, and the way in between. And it's eternity revealed on the tree that destroys our walls and rips the veil in the inner temple that we might be begotten from above, And it's eternity that begins to fill our empty vessel with life, our old man with the new man, the imprint of the first Adam with the presence of the last Adam, the eschatos Adam. And it's eternity that then begins to flow between us and our neighbors in a communion of sacrificial love that is eternal life. And I think we call this process falling in love. It's one unadorned soul calling to another unadorned soul, saying, rise and live. Remember who we are. Sociologists distinguish between, some do, between love and power in this way. Power is the ability to force others to yield to your will against their own will. However, authority is the ability to cause another to freely will what you will as their own will. In order to exercise authority, one must, to some extent, lay power down. Authority is the power of love. And in the end, I think we'll see that that's the only real power that there is. At first, we may experience it as insulting and offensive, but in the end, we'll know it as romance. To be created and to be saved is to be caught up in the romance of God that is God. Next verse. Likewise, wives, being subject to your own husbands. Now, please Don't miss the fact that Peter just equated (laughs) Emperor Nero, slave owners, and husbands. (laughs) Arrogant husbands. And he is certainly not saying that they're right. He's saying that they're wrong. But this is how we make them right. Peter knows that Emperor Nero is already trapped in hell. Slave owners are already enslaved to evil, and arrogant husbands have no real power. But right now he's speaking to the outlaws, the slaves, the battered women that made up the early church, and he's saying, don't give up your power. Trying to become like those that have no power, and are already enslaved and utterly alone. Likewise, wives, being subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, the logos, they may be one. They may be romanced without a word. Why? Because you are the body of the word. Romanced without a word by the conduct, the behavior of their wives when they see your literally pure behavior in fear. But Peter isn't talking about fearing an earthly husband. There's only one to fear, according to Jesus in Luke 12, and Peter was listening to him. Only one to fear, said Jesus, and then he said, so fear not. Peter's talking about worshiping the Lord in the sanctuary of the soul. Do not let your adorning, your cosmos, be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but but let your cosmos be the hidden anthropos, man of the heart. In the imperishable. Beauty's added by the translator, so it's probably something more like this. In the imperishability, in the eternity of the gentle and tranquil spirit, which in God's sight is very costly, precious. Peter is saying that in the depths of your temple, there is an eternal sanctuary. And in that eternal sanctuary, there is an eternal man who is your husband, our helper. If you adorn yourself with eternity, you're just putting perfume on a corpse if you adorn yourself. But if you abide in eternity with the eternal man, you will begin to live an eternal life now and give birth to eternity even as you walk through space and time. Next verse. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn Cosmeo themselves, being subject to their own husbands. So, the, were they sacrificing themselves to their husbands? No! That's idolatry. They were sacrificing themselves to God at a temple in which God dwelt, even if held captive by their husbands' hard and impenitent souls. They hoped in God at the temple of their husbands for the gift of life, being subject to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, quite literally her children, if you pay attention, doing good and not fearing anything that is terrifying. Now, Peter just told us in verse 17, the previous chapter, fear God. And now he says, fear nothing terrifying, which obviously means that God is not terrifying and so the only reason to fear God is that he's absolutely good in the place that we think we're bad or at least that we consider ourselves to be bad that place where we feel shame but now what's up with Sarah obeying Abraham and calling him Lord you're wondering about that If you know anything about Abraham, you know that he was a terrible husband. I mean, seriously, go back and read it. He pimps his wife twice, literally, to save his own tail. And check it out. There's only one verse in which Sarah calls Abraham Lord. And that's not a usual thing for women to call their husband Lord in the Old Testament. There's only one verse in which he calls him Lord. It's not Yahweh, but Adon, as in Master, Lord, or Sir. One verse is Genesis 18. The God-man, he comes to Abraham at the door of his tabernacle, his tent, and Sarah is just inside the door. Abraham's 99 years old. Let that register. And the God-man says, this time next year I will return, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Genesis 18, 12. So Sarah laughed, Sahak, like Esau, Isaac, to herself. She she laughed, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord Adon is old, shall I have pleasure? In Hebrew, Eden. Shall I have Eden? And the God-man says, why did she laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You understand, Jesus is touching Abraham and Sarah in their place of greatest shame. And he's touching them with hope. They had spent their entire lives trying to fulfill God's promise that in Abraham and his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But Sarah and Abraham had remained barren. When Sarah Laugh, she acknowledged that shame, basically saying, He's 99, and you expect him to do that, and me to enjoy that. But in that place of Abraham's greatest shame, his unadorned weakness, his naked failure, she hoped and she honored him as Lord. See, I think. She romanced him. And it worked. In a year, she gave birth to laughter, a different kind of laughter. Isaac, father of Israel, great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Verse 7, likewise, in the same way, husbands, Abide together in one tent or house with your wives according to knowledge knowledge now that you know how to know according to to knowledge showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable wrote Paul On average women have weaker bodies and biologists will tell you that this is because they are so constructed as to accommodate a weakness that turns out to be an immeasurable strength, without which there would be no hope for humanity. And wonder of wonders, it is that very weakness, which my wife instinctively covered in shame, that I found to be so strangely attractive, such that when my unadorned soul communed with her unadorned soul in the sanctuary of our tabernacle, four new souls entered the world. That's power in weakness. And it's hard to think of anyone weaker than the 12 to 17-year-old Jewish peasant girl from the backwater village of Nazareth named Mary. And yet she is clearly the most powerful mortal that has ever walked the face of this earth, mere mortal. For she allowed herself to be romanced by the word of God, and in response to the word of God, she said, May it be done unto me according to your word. And yet Jesus didn't call himself the son of Mary, did he? He called himself the son of man. I think Peter says likewise husbands, not only because husbands are to subject themselves to their wives, but because Peter believed that we are all the wife of Christ, the body of Christ, the living temple, the new Jerusalem coming down. And so just outside our city walls, the emperor of all, the master of all, the husband and helper of all, Jesus from the bosom of the Father, revealed to all the unadorned soul of our Creator." At the revelation of his beauty, all the walls will come tumbling down and each of us will return to him and we will return to each other as his body and bride. And we will live for having known the evil. We will forever choose the good, which is life eternal, the endless romance of God that is God. And it can begin right now. When you commune with the eternal man and the eternal sanctuary that's in the depths of your soul, it turns out that you cannot do good deeds. You cannot do righteousness any more than a woman can do a baby. You can only give birth to righteousness like you can only give birth to a baby. If you attempt to adorn yourself with righteousness... Well, it's pretty tough on the righteousness and you only make an imitation Christ, an antichrist, the abomination of desolation. But if you surrender to the righteousness in the sanctuary of your own soul, you will give birth to the fruit of righteousness and be covered in righteousness from the inside out. He literally is your righteousness. You will lose your cosmos. That's terrifying. And then you will find it in him. And that's ecstasy. So on the night before we took his life, he gave his life. He romanced us with his unadorned soul. He took the bread saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins, drink of it, all of you, and do it in recollection, do it in remembrance of me. And so we invite you to come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and then take the life of Christ and put it in your place of shame. And wonder of wonders, this is the place that the Christ child is born. And this is the way that he conquers the world. Through you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I feel a bit shredded because all of this is so good and at the same time so terrifying. For you touch each one of us with unspeakable hope in our place of shame. For you call us to be what we truly are, the image of God, who is relentless love. And so, Lord, I imagine somewhere there may be young men asking themselves, is Peter saying that I am to subject myself to a government that would draft me into a war? And Jesus, I don't know. But you do. And there are people asking themselves, is Peter saying that I am to subject myself to the abuses of my boss? And Jesus, I don't know, but you do. And now, Jesus, this maybe is my most earnest prayer. There are women asking themselves, is Peter Hyatt saying that I'm to stay in this marriage and subject myself to this abuse? And Jesus, I don't know. I think you carried your cross every day, but you were only crucified on one day. Jesus, I do not know if this day is that day for my friends. I don't know. But you do. And so, Lord, give each of us the courage to abide with you in the inner sanctuary and subject our souls to you as you have subjected your soul to us. And so remind us, repent us with your living knowledge that we are your beloved and all that you will is good and life and everything for which we most desperately, deeplessly, earnestly, secretly long for, desire. Jesus, we cannot make ourselves like you, and for that we feel shame. But Jesus, you can make us yourself, and so we surrender our shame to you in the sanctuary of our own soul, and we hope. And so, Lord, thank you that you are God with us. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to resist the lies of the evil one, who would want us to take the words in First Peter and reduce them to laws for other people. And in that way, just produce a lot of fig leaves, death, fear, and loneliness. Lord Jesus, I pray that instead of reducing you to laws, cutting you into pieces and using you like a thing to justify ourselves, that we would take the words of First Peter as I think Peter intended them to be, the story of the romance of God as a living word that dwells in our soul. And so, Lord, I pray that we would commune with you in the sanctuary of our soul, that we would subject ourselves to you, even as you have subjected yourself to us, so that, Lord Jesus, you would show us your hands and your feet. And falling in love with you, we would be willing to be your body for those around us, that they might be set free. In hope of that day when we're all set free and all the pain and shame and fear and isolation of this world is consumed in absolute ecstasy which is life in the kingdom of God. So Lord God, touch us with hope in all our places of shame. In other words, um, be Christmas In us. In Jesus name. Amen. And so what what are we saying? We are saying that all of us. Humanity. Adam. Was just blown apart at this tree. Because we took the life of Christ. And all of us. Will come together at this tree because God gave the life of Christ, which is His own life. Period. That's the gospel. It's that simple. But now you will notice something died just now in that recognition. Me, that arrogant, self-righteous, unforgiving, resentful, lonely, old me. And something was just born. And that's what we're going to gather and sing about next week. When we have our uh, Say Law Christmas service, we're going to celebrate uh, Christmas, and then a week later on Christmas Eve, instead of Christmas morning, come back and really throw uh, something of of a party celebrating the life that's born in us. So, by way of benediction, it is really seriously always the same thing. Believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.